Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stats, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we are joined by Jennifer Baker. She is an author, editor, and podcaster who has a brand new young adult novel out called Forgive Me Not. The intense and captivating book shines a light on the lives of incarcerated black and brown teen girls. It tells the story of a family torn apart by tragedy and loss in their attempt to reconnect as they test the limits of forgiveness. Jennifer and I talked today about the world she created for her characters, how hope plays into writing for young people, and her insights into the world of publishing after being an editor at a Big Five publisher and creating the Minorities and Publishing podcast over the last nine years. Remember, our August book club selection is You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty by Akweke Mezi, and I'll be discussing that book with Sam Sanders next week, August 30th, right here on The Stacks. Everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. If you want more of The Stacks, join The Stacks Pack over on Patreon. It's just $5 a month, and when you join, you have access to our monthly virtual book club, The Stacks Pack Discord, which is extremely active, and you get our monthly bonus episodes. Plus, you get to know that you're helping to make this show possible. The Stacks is an independent podcast, which means I don't have the support of a big company backing every single thing I do. So, if you want to help the show, if you want to make the show possible, if you love what you hear, go to patreon.com slash the stacks and join us. Shout out to our newest members of the Stacks Pack, Laura Zugschwert, Steph, Charlotte Roxborough, Crystal Orozco, Rebecca M, and Ellen Wilson. Thank you all so much for joining and thank you to the entire Stacks Pack. All right, now it's time for my conversation with Jennifer Baker. All right, everybody. I am thrilled today to be joined by a person that I have known of for basically since I started this podcast about five years ago, but we've never actually talked before. She is an author, an editor, a podcaster, generally just an important person in the world of books and publishing, especially for those of us who are not white and especially, especially for those of us who are black women. I am thrilled to welcome the amazing, incredible, talented, smart, wonderful Jennifer Baker to the stacks. Welcome. Thank you, Tracy. It's Mutual Admiration Society right now. I love it. Well, 
we'll start with the book. You have a brand new book. It just came into the world as people are listening, but when we're talking, it hasn't come out yet. Um, but the book is called Forgive Me Not. Will you tell folks in about 30 seconds or so what this book is about? The pressure of 30 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Forgive Me Not is a young adult novel. It's dual perspective and you follow the lives of Violetta Chen Samuels and her slightly older brother, Vincent Chen Samuels. Unfortunately, Violetta gets into a drunk driving accident that causes the death of her younger sister. And in this world, which is a mirror of our contemporary world in Queens, New York, where I'm from, there is a juvenile system that is, quote unquote, kind of like a restorative justice, but not quite, where you have the options of being forgiven and then therefore you are free or not charged, where you might be incarcerated for a determinate amount of time, or where you may be decreed to get to enter the trials. And now the twist is the victims of said crime are the ones who make that decision. And for Violetta, it is her family. Yes. Okay. I have so many things I want to dig into already from what you've said, but I want to start with just really basic. Where did you get the idea for this book? Because it, like you said, it mirrors our world, but it's like slightly speculative dystopia-y, but like not a lot. Like I kept being like, is this real? Are there trials in places? So I'm curious where you got the idea. Well, that's the kicker because, I mean, I learned more about restorative justice, or I, I'm going to use air quotes around restorative justice, um, and overall the criminal justice system in America, as I dug more into it, I had mm. to really understand more of the specificity of what's going on in the state, let alone this country. Mm-hmm. Um, but the original idea came from this show called Forgive or Forget. Did you ever watch it? It was syndicated. No. Yeah. So there was this woman named Mother Love who was the host and it was kind of Jerry Springer-esque in terms of the whole setup Mm -hmm. where basically if someone did something wrong, they would go on and apologize to someone in front of a live studio audience and say, yeah, I cheated on my wife or I caused us to go bankrupt or I did this or whatnot. This sounds familiar. So you may have, you may have. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And you know, of course you do these things on live television. <laughs> <laughs> you bring in, everybody go, ooh, uh, and essentially either the person would come on the show and maybe forgive you, maybe not, but be willing to talk it out in front mm-hmm. of that live studio audience mm-hmm. or a video would come up and that person would say, I'm not coming there. I don't forgive you. What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. So it was that kind of setup of, oh, you You can literally go to the door. That's how you would find out if the person came to, quote unquote, forgive you or not. And then they would be like, well, they didn't come to forgive you. As you can see, womp womp. Here's a video. Right, right. (laughs) I don't want to do that. And I said, well, what if this was how it worked? If you were deemed guilty of a crime and someone, me, is the victim of that crime came up and said, I I do not forgive you. And therefore you should deal with this or you should do this. And and so that's where the gestation of all this came. And then you have to do all the work and all that. But the characters also came very, very quickly and vividly for me. So Vincent and Violetta were very fully formed in terms of voice and circumstance. But then I had to do all that plot building and character development and all that good stuff. And what sort of texts were you looking to or what sort of people or information, maybe they weren't text movies, TV shows, were you looking to, to kind of flesh out some of that quote unquote restorative justice stuff? 
I think what I realized the biggest thing is the stuff that we watched, like I watched Oz a lot. Okay. Right. And that was HBO in the late nineties, early aughts. And that's yeah. dramatic, you know, it's, right, it's right, a right. dramatic show. So you have that in your head, but then you start looking at the, you know, department of correction sites and you start digging into like studies and, you know, the Brennan center and what they're writing about and what, can, what are the divisions of law and what are the criteria of what you can get arrested for, for how long mm. and what does this equal this? So getting into that kind of technical jargon, which mm-hmm. is really technical. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right, right. Think right. about how it's worded and it's just like, you're like, okay. <laughs> and you kind of deciphering it as a, as a, you know, MFA English creative writing major. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> like, and then I was getting into more books. So I was reading a lot of, Angela Davis and Angela writes more about what could this could be right what Mm -hmm. it should look like you know what resistance is what you know true abolition looks like and so like I have this book the one edited by her um it's from Verso if they come in the morning which is a lot of letters in prison Mm -hmm. and then there's another one which is the freedom is a constant struggle Mm -hmm which is more speeches and then, you know, her autobiography, which rounds out a lot of her time. So she was like a main guiding post. And I, I pimp Haymarket Press a lot because I love <laughs> their books and their mission. So and everything. I love Haymarket, love Haymarket. So, so much. So, uh, and various ones of these books are from Haymarket too. A lot yeah. of their public republishing a lot of Miss Davis's work and, you know, Kianga and, um, I believe Miriam Cobb is more like the new press too. Yeah, right? she's like her, her. They they uh, what is it? We free us till we kick my kid. Yeah, you do until we're free. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. one is Haymarket. I know yeah, for sure. There, there's Haymarket. But some of her then, other stuff is new press. Uh, yeah. And I think her newest one, "Let This Radicalize Us," is also Haymarket. Okay. Yeah. I think. Yeah, so I think. Don't quote yeah, me. So- those are like the two go-tos. And of course I read the new Jim Crow. I don't mention it mainly because I right. feel like that's kind of a lot of people's intro yeah. to criminal yeah. justice is, yeah, is the so. new Jim Crow. Uh, but yeah, I definitely read that one too. Yeah. Um, so it was reading a lot of that going online, especially researching what the categories were. And when it came, you know, once the book was a book, asking people who worked at Rikers, people who had been incarcerated mm. to read as well. Um, to to get more of that immediate first person response of like, well, how is this reading as well? Because you don't want to re-traumatize. You don't. I don't want to play off of right what I've seen on TV because I right. have seen the documentaries and I have seen like Scared Straight and what right. people are doing for actual rehabilitation. Of you know, like the actor who we lost sadly from Love Lovecraft, right? Oh, uh, Michael K. Williams. Yeah, Michael K. Williams, and he there was he had a documentary because he actually has this actual program mm. uh, that looked at. But I had been near the finish line of the book by that point when right. that documentary came on. So a lot of the stuff you're seeing is kind of like scared straight, or mm. I'm going to come in and help you troubled youth, right? Right, right, right. I don't want to perpetuate that either. Yeah, so I yeah, think the book's much more helpful for me at least than some of the shows I was watching because the shows weren't really about those who were incarcerated it was more about this feeling so then let me ask you this how did you sort of like fight against 
those narratives that we've seen or the way that incarcerated people, especially young people, are portrayed in the media and like to a broader society? How did you push back or how did you think about pushing back on that as you were writing, as you were fleshing out Violetta and the other young women who were incarcerated with her? And that was when I was in more conversations because I started this book in 2014. Ha ha, publishing. (laughs) (laughs) And so I had just joined We Need Diverse Books at Mm -hmm. that point. Mm -hmm. And I had started my podcast later that year. And as I was in these groups, you know, my community is expanding even more and more. The discussions online are expanding even more, right? Like we're learning more about disability because there are more think pieces, there are more mm-hmm. essays being published, uh, people are talking about the, the, the specifics. So it's not as though you have to go to print journals right. solely to find some of this stuff. You could actually, it's like really at your fingertips in a much bigger way than it was in my childhood or even in my early college years. So I'm now understanding my privilege too, mm. right? Because there's a way that you can lean on racism, which exists and is a fact and is something we have to deal with. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, still recognize that I am cis- cisgender. I right. am straight. I'm heterosexual. I am able-bodied. You know, I have not always come from a middle-class background. I come, you know, like I was homeless for a little bit in my teen years. So I, I understand like there are times when I don't know where I was going to eat mm-hmm. and, and I didn't have a firm address. And so there are things about class and race I can understand, but then there mm-hmm. are things about sexuality and gender and other aspects that I don't understand that I'm coming to in my thirties at this point. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and so as I'm talking to more people and in more of these environments and hearing deeper discussions and not just talking about literature, which is my life, but talking about the effects of that, I'm growing as a human being and mm. understanding what I'm perpetuating as mm-hmm. well. Because I didn't have to think about these things, right? right and the right. moment you don't have to think about certain things that obviously ardently affect other people, you're kind of part of the issue and mm-hmm. not and that doesn't mean you're a bad person. That just means right. it's like, oh, we're just not thinking about it because we don't have to. And it's like, well, well, now let's start doing it. And I think the biggest thing for me was that I wanted Violetta to have a loving community mm-hmm. in and outside. Right. And as long as I stuck to that, I felt like I wasn't playing into some of the issues that I had seen. How's the book changed from when you set out to write it in 2014? It's gotten better, I'll say. (laughs) Okay. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, much better. I mean, I was stuck for a lot of things. I talked to people about the, um, what is it, the arc, you know, Mm -hmm. rising action, falling action. You know, you and then you get the hump and then you go down. Right. And so for Violetta and Vince, they have their arcs. And for Vince, it was a bit easier mm-hmm. because I was like, okay, I knew where he landed. Mm-hmm. And with Violetta, I knew where she started and I knew where I wanted her to go. But there was this chunk where I was like, ah, I don't know what's happening here. Mm. And, and I was very much stuck. And even when we submitted it, my agent was kind of like, I think this is the best that we could do, Jen. And I'm like, cool, let's just submit it. All right, see what happens. But it was very much this whole of, I'm just, this is the point where Jen is, doesn't know what she's doing. <laughs> who helps you with that? Your editor? Who comes in My and editor does did that with you? Stacey Barney, a, uh-huh. a, a Black woman who's just done amazing things in publishing, especially for children's lit. Uh, she helped me because 
you know, at, at first I tend to stuff a lot of things in there mm-hmm. and then reel it back. So there was a lot more characters who then mm-hmm. merged to become one rather than like Vince having eight friends, you know, right. as like a core of four, you know, or three or whatever. Um, you know, like Violetta was in this woman's group and then like got rid of the women's group and then make take one of those characters or I had this character who's just kind of this ominous character mm-hmm. and I merged her with Petra. Okay. Um, and so that was my thing. Like I was just like throwing all these characters in mm. to try and do things. And then you're like, well, who the hell are they? And right. now I got to describe them. <laughs> Thank you for getting rid back? of them. Thank you. Because <laughs> I am famously like, there's too many people in this fucking book. And I didn't feel that way in this book. So thank you for pulling it in. Cause I would have been like, I can't keep track. I hate, I hate that feeling as a reader when I'm like, I need to take notes on who's in the book. Like that is one of my pet peeves. I hate it. And writers hate it too, I think, you know, yeah. I'm not but a lot of writers do it. I'm just like, can you cut them? Yeah. Like, does your best friend need a best friend's best friend? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if you need a third degree sidekick. I wonder if it's because they're basing it so much on real life. And they're like, well, yeah. in real life, I have eight friends. But it's yeah. like, yeah, but you have, probably have a core of two yeah. or three, right? But two of your friends are similar and they could be one person. <laughs> And one of your friends was rude to you last week at brunch. So she's out. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Weed it down, people. Help me help you. Do we need do we? Um, so the book's young adult. And I'm curious about what you felt or what you feel your obligation is to young people that's maybe different than writing to adults. Because I know you have... Um, a collection that you edited that was for adults. I know that you uh, yourself are an editor of adult literature. So I'm wondering sort of like how you see the different role of the author in relationship to audience when it comes to young adults versus full adults, old adults. That's a great question. Thank you for that. I talked to Kaysen Calendar about that and Kaysen, because Kaysen wrote some adult stuff and I was like, Kaysen, this is kind of brutal. And, you know, Kaysen won the National Book Award for other, you know, some really beautiful stories that can be hard to read as well. And and Kaysen was like, I think what I'm going for is I'm more worried about the younger generation and want to leave them with hope. Mm. And I always kind of remembered what Kaysen said in that way, because I was like, well, do I do that? too (laughs) or sometimes Mm. it's not that you don't care about your adult audience but you feel like there are things that an adult will have experienced or may be able to process in a way that you may not want to introduce to a younger reader Mm. who may not this may be the first book ever that they are ever ever thinking about Mm -hmm. criminal justice or juvenile detention Mm -hmm. And, and I didn't want to do anything that was like you said, gratuitous, right? I didn't want to just have violence to have violence or anything. I really wanted everyone to have love for each other. So that was paramount for me, especially for a young reader coming into this to know that even though something really bad happened, Mm -hmm. that people really do care about each other here. It is just, you are in the midst of grief, of anger. You know, you're probably going through the Kubler-Ross cycles, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. All at the same time, perhaps. And I wanted the characters to make a decision for themselves, right. whether that's very big or not in terms of action. It needs to feel big so that the teenagers in this book have a lot of agency. Mm. And so those were the two things I said. I wanted them to feel loved in the, even in the midst of a lot of stuff and also to be able to make a choice for themselves. Mm. 
Yeah, it's interesting what Keyson Calendar says, because one of the conversations that I've had multiple times with another beloved uh, young adult and children's author, Jason Reynolds, is that sometimes I struggle with young adult because I feel like it's got too tight of a bow at the end. But I'd never really thought about that as being like maybe a tool or an invitation for young people to stay with the work as opposed like, you know, like giving them hope that there's maybe more here for them or or an opportunity for them as opposed to like what how I read as an adult, which is I read a lot of like very bleak stuff. And so I know how fucked up the world is. But it, like sometimes I forget right. that for young adults, like you don't want them to necessarily like you want them to know that the world is fucked up, but like maybe that there's an opportunity in that. And I'd never really thought about it as hope. But I and I also think that like as an adult, a lack of hope, which sometimes I have, is really not helpful for action and like really not helpful for change. And and maybe I wish sometimes adult authors would be nicer to me. <laughs> Valid. Yeah, I just never I'd never really thought about it that way. But that is a really helpful framing for sort of the difference between young adult and adult is like that there's maybe an opportunity or an invitation from the author for the young person to like stick with it or like to know that there's possibility here. Let's take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank member FDIC. Okay, we're back. I want to ask you about the family in this book. So at the end of the book, there's an author's note where you started off by saying like, this is a book about family. And I'm curious where that came from for you, why it was important for you to say that specifically, as opposed to this being a book about incarceration or a book about personal shame or guilt or a coming of age story. Like, I'm just really curious why you wanted to expressly tell your audience this is a book about family. You know, if I'm being completely honest, I think it was the publishing in me. <laughs> okay. Okay. I feel like, you know, I know what folks are going to say it is. I know how this might be marketed. I know uh-huh. Uh-huh. how this might be categorized for selling purposes, but I want you to know mm-hmm. that when I, yeah, the premise came to me. But the characters came to me. Mm-hmm. And, and the premise means nothing if I can't find the vessels to be able to tell that story. Because mm-hmm. I tend to write very character-driven stories. So if I have the voice and the characters, I'm good. Mm-hmm. And I might be flailing because I'm not a great swimmer. Mm-hmm. I might be flailing <laughs> for a bit about plot, pacing, ah, but I'll get there. Um, mm-hmm. Hopefully, for the most part, I will. But if I have no character and I have, have none of that, I have nothing. Mm-hmm. I have nothing to offer as a reader. Uh, and so that very much came to mind for me. And I do think as someone who, yes, because I remember that wonderful, more recent episode you did with Miriam, where she's talking about the connections we have, mm-hmm. even though we don't believe we have them mm. to criminal justice. Right. And so I wanted to be very clear of like, I am not Angela or Miriam or Michelle right. Alexander in that regard, where right. they've been doing this work for years and, and you know are, are just amazing at this. And I'm in awe whenever I sit and hear them. And at the same time, I do want to talk about this. I am learning about this. And I do this through a family. Mm-hmm. And I want you to empathize and feel with this family because this is our family. They love mm-hmm. each other, you know, and we have complications with family and people right. really do think they're, they're helping us when they are not like family or not. You know, I've yeah. dealt with this in so many areas of my life where I'm like, you really think you're helping me right now and you are causing damage. Right. I have a hypothetical question, which I never usually ask authors about books, but this popped into my head as I was reading the book. So you mentioned how in this world, people who are convicted of crimes are essentially, or at least young people are given the opportunity to be sort of sentenced by the victims or the families of the victims of the crime. What happens in this world if it is a quote unquote victimless crime? Did you ever think about that? Was that something that I don't like? I don't know if that came comes to you. Like I don't know how far you take the world in your own brain because that's not part of the book. But it was just something that popped into my head. Yeah, because for me it wouldn't work, right? <laughs> well, right. I was just thinking, like, yeah, what work. would happen? 
Yeah, I feel like there's a complexity to that that makes that such a great hypothetical or and realistic, like stylistic question. Because I remember sitting there when I had way more characters uh-huh. and being like, well, what did she do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, like, what did she do that would be, would cause her to be in here? Okay, so what did she do? Right. <laughs> right After a while, right. you're like, I can't keep, you know, Adelaide and like, making up more and more because there are eight girls in a room who mm-hmm. we may or may not see again mm-hmm. uh, because mm-hmm. at some time it is a quote-unquote victimless crime right at some point mm-hmm. it is something where it's like well you know you you burn this and no right. one you right. know and that's not cool but no one got hurt technically but is right. it on someone's property because then we can get to the nitty-gritty of that right? right i feel like that's part of like the problem one of the problems with criminal the criminal penal system in America is that the system is always looking for a victim to make whoever did something out to be a, you know, a bad person. I think about again, Miriam Cabo, when she was on, she was talking about, and also in the book we read, which was um, prison by any other name, they talk about sex workers and it's like, yeah, like you don't have to actually arrest sex workers. Like that doesn't have to be a crime, right? Like, and and it is sort of a victimless crime, right? Like, if you're engaging in sex work on your own volition and with another person who is a consenting adult who's exchanging money with you, like if you were to then arrest the sex worker, they would have done a victimless crime, right? Like, however, we still punish those people for what? And I, I think maybe, you know, the thing about abolition work is I feel like it is always building for me in my head. I'm like building on these different conversations I've had and books I've read. And so that that's where that hypothetical sort of popped into my brain. But it's a good question. I feel like if I explored this world again, yeah, that would be a really great topic to bring yeah. up, right? Like, I think it would be interesting. Was, right? It would be like, well, why am I even here, y'all? Technically, right. there were no victims. And they're like, right. well... As we decreed. Right. Because I, yeah, I sort of fear like how I was thinking about it in your world as I sort of fear like those kids would be just locked away. Like they wouldn't have an option for a trial. I sort of feel like that's what happens. It's just like, oh, you did a quote unquote victimless crime. Like, here you go. 10 weeks or whatever, like that they would just have some punitive thing. And it's like, you don't have an option for redemption because redemption's only through others or something. I don't know. Like in, in your world, that's sort of where my brain went. I absolutely believe that because they think they did a better job. And that was yeah. the biggest thing that I wanted to be, be consistent about is that these folks believe what they are selling. Mm-hmm. They believe it wholeheartedly. They got mm-hmm. stats. They have a. Pre- I guarantee they have a presentation ready. Oh yeah, uh, you know. You There's quote unquote data. Unquote data. There is- yeah, they're like, we got it all. We got yeah. it. this is effective. That's what Randall, <laughs> who the parents talk to, right? And he's their, right. you know, mediator between that world and what they're doing. Fuck with. that guy. <laughs> Honestly, the there's a lot. Of, there's like, a lot yeah. of people that are kind of fuck that guy in the book, but Randall. I think everyone, the Chen Samuels, the auntie, <laughs> myself, we all just don't fuck with Randall, and that's not really a spoiler. Nobody, if you fuck no, with Randall, no. you don't fuck with us. Is basically yeah. bottom line. He was kind of like the most explicit one that was just like, okay, well, I, I'm not really adding too much depth here. Do you feel like you need that in a book? like a fiction book do you feel like as a writer or or as a reader that you like need a villain or like an obvious villain and that's the thing 
I mean, my question to you, Tracy, is, is a villain what we decree them or do they see themselves as a villain? I think it's what the reader sees them as. Okay. I don't think anybody thinks they're the villain. Right. Except for like in a funny way, you know, except for like in a, you know, it's me, I'm the whatever Taylor Swift lyric, you know, like, like like in a sort of ironic way where it's like, I'm, I'm the villain. This is my villain origin story. But I don't think anyone, I don't think anyone thinks that they're a bad person necessarily because I think everyone thinks they're doing the best they can. But I'm, I meant that question more in like as a reader or like as an artist, do you feel like you need to create like an obvious um, sort of foil to the story? I don't think so. No, I like them. I like a villain. So I, I love when authors give me someone to like it, hold on to a little bit. Yeah. Like, I think it's fun. All of this. Yeah, it's like, oh, here's this fucking guy. Let's go. It's on site, Randall. <laughs> and that's the even writing Randall. I had no feelings towards him because, again, I've worked with Randall. Right. We all know Randall. I think that's what makes him so hateable. We all know a Randall. And what's wild is, you know, when Randall's at home or with his folks or whatnot, they're like, you know, these are the good parts of Randall. And so that's how I looked at it is like, I'm not less necessarily taking the time to let you get to know Randall in a complex or multi-layered way. Um, Not to say I wrote him one dimensionally. No, no, no. I don't think so. But like, I I was just like, I just know this guy and I know he really believes in what he's selling. Yeah. And, And it makes the, even the word villain to me be like, well, what is that? I interrogate right. it so much more now over right. the years, looking at who our politicians are, looking right. at the people who I've worked with, the people who, you know, engage with me in everyday life. And right. Just, you know, like, you're just like, wow, you really don't get it. You right. don't get it. But you right. really feel like you are protecting someone. Well, that's what I was going to say about Randall. So, sorry, we've been talking about Randall, but people, he is sort of the like adjudicator of the family. He's the representative of the victim. So he goes with the victim's family when they're trying to figure out what should happen to the person who's been convicted of the crime. So in this case, he is with Violetta's family and he's helping them figure out what to do with her. And I, I think to your point, not only does does Randall think that he's doing a good job? But I also think Randall's family probably thinks that Randall is a hero. Randall is helping get second chances for young people who have young criminals. You know, he's dedicated his life to these really difficult people and these difficult situations. Like, I think that there is a book to be written by a different person with a different set of beliefs than you, where Randall is the hero and is the most beloved character, which I think is what makes Randall so hateable for someone like me because he's a very small minor character but for me I'm like you are fucking up my guy (laughs) like you're not helping and like you are part of the problem you know and like so for me it's like I think part of why I hate Randall so much is because I recognize that Randall to a lot of people the majority of people is a good guy doing a good job and working extra hard to help this poor family and I just don't see it that way Absolutely. Absolutely. I have no feelings towards him as in, it's not that I hate him or love him or whatever. I just am like, this is who he is. And then he he serves a very necessary purpose. I, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let me ask you about the cover and the title. How much were you involved in the cover? How was the title easy? Did it come to you right away? Was it a long process? How did you land on it? Give me sort of that backstory. I'm not always great with titles, but this stuck. So I called it, forgive me not. And it stuck. 
even through publishing. They were like, yeah, so this works. And I was like, wow, I was expecting Great. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, ready. I was like, what do you got for me? What are you going to tell me what this is going to be? And da, 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 da. And I was like, love under lockup? Like, what is it going to be? Uh, <laughs> and they're like, no, we really think the title works. And I said, okay. And they're not that many. There's one other book written by a woman. I think her name's Samantha. I forget. But it came out years ago, but mm. in the century called mm-hmm. Forgive Me Not. So there's only one other book. Great. Um, in the United States, at least, that's called Forgive Me Not. So I don't have to worry about that much. Mm-hmm competition and our our covers are dramatically different and hers is like a romance so i okay. don't think we'll be mistaken got it got it got it got it, got it. Okay. and she's okay. right so okay. there's <laughs> But, you know, I put everything we talk about in the show notes and I'm going to have to find that book and link to it in the show notes for people just yeah. so they can see it. So you've done this to yourself. Don't ever talk yeah. about her again. <laughs> all right, all right. But it is, I think it's a Cybody Schuster book. Like, hey, okay. like, I'm up for other people getting some sales. Yeah. You know? Shout out to maybe Samantha. <laughs> Potentially Samantha. <laughs> that other book um, yeah. <laughs> that is named after my book. Um, yeah. So the the cover was a bit of a journey. Mm. Admittedly, uh, I think that what's good is that everyone always wanted a black. Um, well, be clear, like Violetta is Asian and mm-hmm. black. She is Chinese American and black. So everyone did want, but she's visibly brown skin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so everyone did want like a brown skin young woman on the cover. So that was like universally understood that people wanted that. And, and we did look up models who are biracial, who are part like part Chinese, part East Asian, and Black. Mm-hmm. And so this was modeled over a photo, a model's photo, oh. um, by the artist Michael Mwangi. Um, so he he modeled it. And so we had iterate that just weren't working. Mm. Things weren't working. It was too dark. It was too this. And I didn't, my biggest thing, and sometimes you have to see it to know, nope, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what we wanted, is that, and then you start, formulating and I, I would give a lot of credit to especially my editor and the design team is that they listened but we did this was a year which mm. is not necessarily normal to take right. that long to get to a final cover but I didn't want it to be stereotypical I didn't right. want it to focus solely on the fact that this was about incarceration mm-hmm. so yes she's wearing yellow but it's not a, it's a shirt that I, I feel like you can't tell upon first right. look right. that oh like so that was the thing. It was like, well, it was orange because then you would think orange is the new black, right? Right, so right. So immediately like corrections. That, and I said, can we make it yellow? Because there are corrections right. uniforms like yellow. And then I thought it would take a little bit away from that. And I think the biggest thing was like, I'm not trying to hide the subject matter of the book. I just don't want it to be the sole thing that you're going right. to see a, a BIPOC teen that is brown skin. And bars. I was like, right. I don't like no. Right, 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 right. <laughs> I was like, I don't want her to be in a field of corrections. I don't want her like holding on to a chair. I was like, no, no, it needed to have hope, yeah. as you're saying. And so we got to this point where, you know, it's her primarily and then the chain and then the chains turn into birds at the top. Yeah, I, I actually hadn't noticed that until I asked you today, but I'm going to keep looking at the cover at the corner of my eye and I hadn't actually noticed the birds until today which is very nice touch. Um, I like a cover where you can look at it over and over and find different things. I always think that's really fun as a reader, especially as a slow reader, because I'm always 
picking up the book a lot because it takes me a long time to get through books. <laughs> like I like when I look at the cover and I find new things. Um, okay. How do you like to write? Where are you? What are you eating and drinking? Is there music or no? Is there rituals? How often? What time of day? Sort of set up your writing life for us. Yeah, it's very helter skelter, honestly, because I work full time and then I have other things I do. Mm -hmm. So it really is like, oh, I have a scene, write the scene. I don't write in order. I might start a short story. I might write short in order, but I Mm -hmm. really write all over the place. So even forgive me not was something where the beginning came to me fairly quickly Mm -hmm. and it didn't really change. It got refined, but it didn't really change. But then after that, I'm just writing all these scenes. And I may listen to music. I may not. I need noise of some sort. Mm-hmm. Uh, I live in New York City. To, right. for context, So we always have noise. Always noise. <laughs> so I usually always have a TV in the background. That's like this most soothing thing for me. So and I'm what's not, on the TV for you? Anything. anything. It could be any, especially if I can ignore it. Yeah. Right. And so it could be the news, which I will watch and then I can mm-hmm. tune out or it could be something I've seen a repeat of a show I've seen 18 times. Got like it. TBS does all the syndicated. Shows right, 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 right. Like Friends will be on for eight hours straight until it's evening or, you know, Big Bang Theory or whatever. Right. Um, so reality shows, you know, Housewives, da da da, cooking shows, da da da. And that could be and I could just sit on my couch or sit in my re- my reading chair and just write write a scene or write for an hour, time myself, anything like that. But I don't really have a practice. I think the biggest consistency for me is if character and voice comes first mm-hmm. and I'm able to visualize scenes and then start putting it together, then I know I have something. But mm-hmm. if I'm sitting there like struggling, just like I don't know trying to type because I have to type to a word count or a time limit, I, it's not sticking. It's not mm-hmm. going to stick. So I just know myself and I'm like, okay, this is flowing. And I may not know what 60% of the book looks like, but I know what 40 does. Right. Good. Right. Do you have snacks and beverages? You avoided the most important part of the question. Oh, I love snacks. Okay. Snacks. Talk about it. I'm them. really into popcorn. Just plain air pop, purchase pop. Do you pop it in the microwave? It's the yellow bag with the big pink lettering. Oh, uh, Boom Chicka or whatever. And yeah, I've gotten really into Boom Chicka. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. But I have like at least one bag in my apartment at all times. Okay. I'm really into just the plain, because it's not too salty. I, I, yeah. I do sodium. So that is like my favorite thing. Okay. Got it. And then what's a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? What is it? Well, I work at this job called Narrative Initiative, so I'm always writing initiative. And oh. then I'm just squinting at it like, is it I-A-I-A-T-T-I? Narrative is also hard for me. I have questions about the number of R's for me personally. Yeah. Narrative is a tough word for me. Initiative is that many vowels gets me. Anything that has a lot of vowels back to back, I'm like, oh. Yeah. That's hard. That's a hard. You should tell your company to change their name. Be like yeah, we, the spellingly challenged need less. How about just like yay words or something? That that's good. Um, just I, yeah, just <laughs> that's exactly right. Um, one thing that I didn't ask you about the book that I actually do want to ask you about because I thought it was so striking and I and I can't believe I didn't talk about this earlier is um, the element of grief. Grief is such a huge part of this book, and I thought you really did an excellent job of sort of like 
bringing grief to life and like what it feels like and so how it sort of like can haunt haunt you or like pop up when you don't expect it. And I'm wondering how you were thinking about writing grief, especially for young people, because there are young people who unfortunately have experienced deep grief at a young age. But I could speak for myself. I know that when I was young, I didn't have that experience, you know, in my teens. So I'm wondering how you were thinking about writing that stuff, maybe for kids who have never had that experience. Mm, thank you for that. So I think the biggest thing, it goes back to that hole I was telling you about, mm-hmm. because I had Violetta just enmesh in I'm awful. Yeah. And then it was supposed to be like, you know, this roundabout moment where it's it's not that she forgets, but that, you know, she the agency I was talking about. Right. And I had her avoiding mm-hmm. for some reason. I, I can't explain why I was doing this, mm-hmm. um, but I was doing it for several years, various iterations. And it wasn't until like working with Stacy and then she was asking those questions. And then I had her embrace it. Mm. And that's what was missing. And that closed up that hole. Got it. And so I, I think I was so wrapped up in plot that I needed to think about what the embracing of those memories instead of the avoidance of those memories needed mm-hmm. to do. Mm-hmm. And that unlocked something that allowed the story to do something more. Because mm. Vince was able to always think about it. But Vince wasn't the one who caused the accident. Right. Right. So it's different for him is that, you know, he's living in his own guilt and grief. But for Violetta, because it's like this action of mine created this, um, it, it perpetuates a lot of things and propels the story in itself. And I, I lost my aunt to AIDS, unfortunately. We didn't know until um, the very, very end. And this was mm-hmm. the n- early 90s when people weren't getting what they needed. Right. You know, this was, I mean, Clinton was in office by this point. No, Bush. It was first Bush was in office when, when she passed, unfortunately. And and that was my first day. And they hit it. Like my the adults mm. hit it. They didn't want us to do it. But then it's like you learn someone died and you're like, well, we didn't even get to process this in a real way. And, right. my, and the adults in my family weren't really processing it. Like some were crying and openly grieving. And then others were just like handling it. Right, mm-hmm. like handling the funeral preparation, handling where her kids were going to go, mm-hmm. handling the logistics of it, and, and then losing more people over time. I think unlocking that embracing for Violetta to write to Viv and to like have something for herself and to talk mm-hmm. about the memories is something I wished. Interesting. We did because we did talk about people. It wasn't like oh they're past. We don't talk about them anymore. Right. But in that immediate moment of loss, there was just this weirdness of like we can't really show feelings or we just want to protect the children and we don't want to show we, and it was weird. And mm-hmm. I don't want to do that here. Yeah. Okay. We have a few minutes now towards the end to talk about um, your podcast and your work when you were in publishing and your podcast is called minorities in publishing. You started the show in 2014 and I'm curious to know what, it, what has surprisingly stayed the same in publishing to you. I think a lot of people talk about like what's changed or what needs to change, but I'm curious like what has surprisingly stayed the same and that could be positive or negative. I'm just curious like what's been consistent. So much. <laughs> <laughs> because the ebbs and flows of publishing. Mm. Like I think any business have been consistent because right now we're 2023, right? This is like 2008. Mm. To me, I was in publishing for 20 years. I mean, I'm kind of adjacent to it now in my new full-time job, 
But I literally, from the time I graduated to, like, as of, you could say, again, still to this day or as of last year, um, yeah, like this immediate going to, well, we're not making money. We got to let people off. Mm -hmm. And I think when you're in it, you're you're working with a machine that technically does work, right? You're producing Mm -hmm. books, getting them in the warehouse. You're, things are selling. We're making profit. Right. Someone's making money. Somebody's <laughs> making money in publishing and I'm going to do a fucking oral history to find out who the fuck that is because I get keep getting told there's no money in publishing, but I don't understand how it's a billion dollar industry but also nobody's making money. Exactly. So. The dis- lack of distribution is ridiculous. So I think what's stayed the same is the workflow has not mm-hmm. really changed. I think there's an adaptation to like what we have to deal with now, but Mm -hmm. it, it it just brings up more questions and concerns. Mm -hmm. So we could say that like the workflow is very much the same. Like some of the systems have been in there since I was born. I could say this for a fact because I was there and they're like, yeah, we've had the system for 30 years. And I'm like, right. (laughs) (laughs) If these systems that actually make things happen in terms of getting your book from A to B, how are we even going to start to change the thing? Yeah. Speaking of the money, I think, you know, I am considered press for a book, right? Like I'm part of like the marketing and publicity budget if someone or like that realm. So I don't deal with books pretty much at all until it gets to the marketing and publicity team, which is really interesting because I know there's so much that happens before that. But because that's where my interest is. And I think like, uh, I, you know, you wrote a piece earlier this year about Black women in publishing for electric literature. That was fantastic. And you talk a little bit about like, you know, Black books are still being told like, well, either you'll find your audience or you won't. Or like, there's like a call for more, or there was at least in 2020, a call for more books by Black authors, um, which I think is maybe fizzled, but I don't know for sure. It's just anecdotal to me. But I'm wondering... Like, can you talk a little bit about how the money allocated to books in marketing and publicity, like how that impacts a book? Because I think that sometimes people think, oh, this book was picked as like a diverse read or, you know, or it's being featured on the stacks or it's being featured on X, Y and Z. And that that translates to New York Times bestseller. Or, or that people maybe don't understand that there is a financial aspect of getting a book to be a bestseller. I think a lot of people think if the book is good, it'll be a bestseller. And I know that that's not true, but I'd love to hear you speak to that and to my audience. And also, let me just say really quickly to people, I am publicity, so I don't get paid for having people on this show. I just want to clarify that because it sort of sounded like I was part of a budget, but I'm not. Nobody pays me at publishing. <laughs> so yeah, if you could speak to sort of that aspect of it, I, I would love to hear from you. Oh, yeah, sure. So first off, there's the book advance, right? So when you see like someone who might be able to talk openly or chooses to, I should say, talk openly about how much they got, that's a separate budget. Mm-hmm. Like if someone gets a million dollars for a book to write that book, that is a whole other realm of money right? Of, that is not connected to marketing or publicity. Marketing publicity budgets are determined for the most part, this can vary year to year or budget year to budget year, which may Mm. not be the same as a calendar year. And that's decided by a whole other bunch of people. You know, I, when I was in acquisitions and and buying books, I had to go to my publisher and say, I want this book up. The the money's gone up. I'm in an auction. Oh my God. Right. And that's where that, and that's for that moment. Mm -hmm. Right. 
And then the book is coming out a year, two years, three years, whatever later. And now we have to deal with what's what's this budget year looking like? Mm. So a budget year where people are getting laid off is not a good budget year. (laughs) Versus, oh, we have a lot of money. That may be a better budget year, but it really determined it is determined by whoever makes those decisions, which can Mm. be very high up. That's trickle down of it. But it's not editorial and it's not sometimes even the marketing director or the publicity director. It is coming from a higher power and people are negotiating, trying to get more money for their books. And even with publicity, that might be tour. So that's not like you said, you, Tracy, that might be. Do I have money to send someone on a tour? Do Mm -hmm. I have money to to get wine at a bookstore? (laughs) Do I have money to get you on a in an Uber? Like that could be publicity, you know, and then marketing is more of like ads and partnerships and like those cool boxes you see. Yes. Um, And that's determined. Like, do we think this book is going to sell a lot? Do we think that this is commercial? And so we should do these cute boxes and do these kind of things. Do we have other money coming in that can really help us? Do we have book club support? So, you know, you see the Oprah's, the GMA's, the da-da-da-da. You know, that's part of marketing because it helps propel like, actual sales in a different way but it might be publicity too um either way one of those departments sends the books to the book Mm -hmm. club Mm -hmm. and then that's all part of the the marketing and publicity and so it's it's what people i don't think get instead including production right like the design of my book and the product that's a different budget these are all separate budgets right from what people are getting what the author gets paid how the book is produced how the book is marketed and publicized all different departments are deciding this and it's still probably coming from a top, top level that is saying, yes, you can spend this much or guess what? We need to spend less. And that affects you in a big way based right. on those decisions you have no control of as an author. And if you're, let's say your book advance is really big. Does that, you is that usually more or less or mo- more often correlated to how much money then is put behind your book for marketing and publicity? Because like, why would a publisher spend a million dollars on an advance if they're like, here's 35 cents and good luck getting an Uber, <laughs> you know? Here's $500. Yeah. Good, God's- <laughs> good luck. Do with it as you'd like. <laughs> uh, it's not always corollary. It's not. I mean, you would think so, right? Right. And, and I was in meetings where the assumption is if you have a celebrity, a celebrity being, you know, even a TikToker with a million that can right. be considered a celebrity versus what I may think of as a celebrity. A celebrity right, right, right. On TV, and right. On tour. Um, and so that may be this kind of default of, well, you have all these followers already and this audience, built-in mm. audience already. So it's not to say we won't give you money, but we are leaning on the fact that your celebrity status in and of itself mm-hmm. might bring us something. So you can still have a celebrity book that you've paid seven figures for, and you can send them to two cities rather than send them on to 10. Got it. When I was acquiring things, I, I, I might have had huge hopes and dreams and then we're publishing it. And I'm like, I can't control this. I'm not the right. publicity director. I'm not the, the, do y'all love the book? Hopefully y'all love the book as right. much as I love the book. And that's what editors are doing. You're getting everyone to love the book because also you have to deal with sales. And then right. sales is going to the bookstores. So you're right. dealing with publicity, but bookstores and librarian, they're dealing, you know, like what Hannah said, she has a sales rep. Hannah of Loyalty right. Books is a sales rep. So that's yeah. a relationship I, as an acquisitions editor who brought in this book, have no control over. 
Right. But are you going into the budget meetings, whatever, and being like, no, 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 you guys are wrong. This book is great. Like, are you, do you have to go in there and advocate or do they even let you in? They're like, well, Jen's going to say it's great no matter what, because she acquired it. Like how much is the editorial team involved in these types of budgets? Uh, Not not, not really at all. at all. A director might be. So like a publisher or editorial director, like usually the heavy hitters are yeah, in those yeah. meetings. And what you're doing as an editor is when you present to sales, because there are these seasonal meetings where you present your titles for a, a season of, of next year. So it's like yeah. if we're in summer, I'm telling you about seven twenty to 24. And that's when I'm kind of pleading my case and Got giving it. you samples of the book and being like, Love it as much as I do. Right, 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 right. <laughs> it's very Hunger Games. It's very literary Hunger it Games. Really, and it, it's sad because it shouldn't be. We should all have enough to do what we want for our books. But right. if we're all bringing in 20 books and it's a, how many imprints, how many editors, and it's but so much staff. It's but so many salespeople, right. but so many publicists, but so many, but so many podcasters, but, right. so, but so many review places. Right. And so you have to think more innovatively. And if you don't have the time or money to do be innovative, how does that affect the book? And that might land on an author in a very different way. I don't know if you know the answer to this, but I'm always curious because I get asked this a lot. Like, what books have you, Tracy, personally like put on? And I'm sort of like, it's it's impossible to know because there's no way to track. Like, I don't know if I tell someone about a book and they go buy it three months later, you know, that kind of thing. But I'm wondering, like, what is the most impactful thing for a book to sell well? Like, what if, I guess that's very anecdotal and, you know, but what do you think is the most powerful thing? I think what you do, obviously, like by having the sex and telling people what you like and going to those review spaces and being like, hey, I did really did like this book on Goodreads and Amazon. Yeah. But I think people underestimate schools and libraries, especially mm. now we need to really yeah. be supporting them in a big like curriculums are being attacked. It's not just like we did it, you know, like curriculums, curriculums are being attacked. In right. States. Um, so that is stripping us of learning that would lead you to a book like mine or a book like Miriam's or a book like, right. you know, like it, it will strip you of that. Mm. So I think something that, and it's something authors, when I talk to, I think in children's lit, we think a lot more because we're right. trying to reach the younger audience. But in adult lit, I talk to people, especially when I was in acquisitions and I was like, you know, it'd be really great to get your book in universities and schools or even high schools because I think they might need your memoir or mm. need, like your poetry or something like that. And people are like, oh, really? And I'm like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, we need to think about these communities because they they know. And then there are communities working with the schools even more now. So mm-hmm. I think if really look at those community development centers, who's putting on shows and who's bringing authors in, like the House of Speakeasy here in New York. They bring authors and they buy a bunch of our books and we talk to teens for a couple hours. Ugh, and get that. to talk to them about writing whatever they want and then they all get a free book yeah at the end of the day like that's the kind of stuff like you want to support those places too mm-hmm. of like oh we're on the ground we're giving kids books they come to jamaica queens i'm like people don't come to jamaica queens like that i love the house of speakeasy does mm. okay we're gonna wrap up now because we're out of time even though i could talk about i feel like you have to come back and do like a whole publishing thing with me but <laughs> I feel like we got to do it because I have like a thousand. I was like, what three questions can I ask her today? Um, But we might have to do a a revival tour. Um, But back to the book. 
Um, what I always ask people this, what are a few books that you would recommend to people that are in conversation with Forgive Me Not? Oh, definitely Running by Natalia Sylvester. That came out in 2020. I love, love that book. And I love Natalia. Natalia is mm. one of the best humans in the whole wide world. Um, so I think that book, of course, uh, the 1619 Projects Born in the Water. It's a mm. picture book. Mm-hmm. It, and I, I just adore it. You know, Nicole Hannah-Jones, Renee Watson, and um, Nicholas Smith. Um, they're the collaborators on that. And it looks at origins, you know, mm. and it tells it in a very lyrical way, but it looks at like we were dancing and it looks at the hard stuff, mm-hmm. but it also brings it back to the beauty. Mm-hmm. And I think that roundabout way and consciousness that they went about that was really, really intentional and beautifully done. And then, you know, I love Randy Rebay, who was also very nice to provide me a blurb as was Renee, you know, patron saints of nothing. Mm-hmm. He was a national book award finalist and he looks at a lot of different things like, um, with Filipino Americans and also looking at addiction and, you know, secrets and so many things that are happening. So I'm so glad that that book got a lot of the attention it deserved. I love that. Last question. If you could have one person dead or alive, read this book, who would you want it to be? Could, could I get Miriam Cobb? Yeah. Yeah. She <laughs> listens to this show. Sometimes she reads things from the show. Miriam. <laughs> Read the book. <laughs> I love that. I, lo- I love it. Hopefully we can match make that. Um, oh, my God. I she's a great like, I She was at Brooklyn Book Fest last year, and I was just sitting there with her and Derek Purnell. Oh, and they, another fave. Oh, my God. They were just all wonderful, the whole panel. And I was just, I was just like, y'all, yes, yes. Like, yes. it was one of those times where you're not even taking notes. You're just sitting and listening because you need In awe. everything. That's yeah. I love that so much. Um, All right, everybody. Jennifer's book, Forgive Me Not, is out in the world now. You can get it wherever you get your books. Request it at your library. Take it to your kids' schools. Take it to your kids, your friends' kids' schools. Buy it online. Who reads the audiobook? Oh, it's Tyla, T-Y-L-A, Tyla Collier and Ryan Alexander Holmes. Okay, so there's an audiobook, two narrators, because it's Uh, alternating perspective book. Thank you so much for being here, Jen. Oh my God, Tracy, this is the best to finally Finally. engage queen of the stacks. Thank you you so much. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, that does it for us today. Thank you all so much for listening. And thank you again to Jennifer Baker for joining the show. And I'd also like to thank Lithia Mondeser for helping to make this conversation possible. Don't forget the Stacks Book Club pick for August is You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty by Akweke Amezi, which we will be discussing on Wednesday, August 30th with Sam Sanders. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the Stacks Pack. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram, Threads, and TikTok, and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And you can check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. Thank you.